0: Hi, welcome to the Anti-People-Pleasing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Westwood, the Codependency Coach. Each week I answer your questions on codependency, people-pleasing and all things relationship-related submitted to me via Instagram. Follow me on the gram at Joe Westwood to submit your questions in my stories every Monday. You can also hit the link in the show notes to take you straight there. And babes, it is cold and flu season here in the UK and I've got the lurg, so this week you get to enjoy my stuffed up dulcet tones for the next 25 minutes or so. You are welcome. First up today, this from Rose. Do you think of codependency as a symptom of low self-worth and trauma? And if so, is it possible to shift the codependent pattern by healing in these areas? I struggle with the 12-step label. Once a codependent, always a codependent. This may just be my own resistance and denial. Okay, my lovelies. So you may or may not know that there is a 12-step recovery programme for codependent people called Codependents Anonymous, CODA for short, just like Alcoholics Anonymous. This is what Rose is referring to in her question. There are 12-step meetings for all kinds of dysfunctions and addictions, such as but not limited to drugs, gambling, overeating, debting, sex and love, as well as groups like Al-Anon for the friends and family of addicts and adult children of alcoholics or ACOA for the adult children of addicts. One of the principles of 12-step recovery is that we accept that the issues we have are due to, in the language of the programme, defects of character and as such, we introduce ourselves in meetings, just as you've seen in film and TV with the statement, hi, I'm Joe. I'm codependent. The theory of 12 steps is that we should and will always identify as the addict that we came in as, albeit in recovery, so as to keep us humble and keep recovery at the forefront of our consciousness. I say we because Codependence Anonymous was my way into codependent recovery and I personally have found the 12-step programme to be very helpful. I do recommend my clients give it a go if they feel drawn to it. It's an easily accessible way to get into recovery and the community aspect of 12-step fellowships I think can be particularly helpful. Knowing that you can walk into a room full of people who have had similar experiences to you and who will not judge you can be very reassuring, especially at the start of a recovery journey. However, it's not for everybody. It is a spiritual program, and though it has no specific dogma, it does use religious and spiritual language and concepts, which can be a blocked connection and comprehension for some people. Through my work, I've chosen to break my anonymity to share my experience and the message of recovery with clients and my wider community. However, another guiding principle of 12-step fellowships is that we work on the basis of attraction and not promotion. So I won't say any more about the specifics of what meetings entail and I have no attachment to whether people choose to be a part of a 12-step fellowship or not. My personal philosophy is if it works, it works. I don't really care what label it comes under. I just want you to be able to live your best, healthiest, happiest and most fulfilled life. To that end, I've linked in the show notes to a directory of international codependence anonymous websites collated by Coda.org, where you can find out more about meetings in your country if you wish. So back to your question, Rose. Yes, I absolutely agree and operate from the viewpoint personally and professionally that codependency is a symptom of trauma and the resulting low self-worth, and therefore can absolutely be healed. I'm going to share a bit about my personal journey of recovery to give you some perspective and framing that might be helpful as you start or continue yours. I find labelling myself as codependent, or a recovering codependent, or codependent as fuck, lol, which I do interchangeably depending on the company I'm in, fellow trauma survivors and recovery warriors with our gallows humour, heyo, helps to ground me in the reality of my dysfunctional default. Realising that there was a name and a group and a whole host of books written about why I was the way I was and still am occasionally still recovering was wildly helpful to me. Again, personally, I find having a label liberating, not prohibitive. It means that when I'm feeling unduly anxious or not communicating clearly or sliding into control and manipulation or on the brink of making a destructive decision, I have a reference point. I have a quick way to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing and a set of tools and resources to go to, just like if I had a physical ailment. Having a name for it and a set of protocols to follow or medications to take when it flared up would help me to feel empowered and in control of it rather than powerless and lost. Previously, my anchors were always external forms of validation, mainly from romantic relationships, but sometimes also my family, friends or my work. Now my anchor is recovery, my own practice of recovery and my supporters in recovery, friends, fellows and my sponsor. I don't know if there will come a day when my feeling about labeling myself as a codependent or recovering codependent will change. I don't know if one day I will feel like I'm fully recovered and will refer to myself as such. What I do know is that even if that happens, I will always be grateful for my time in recovery and never begrudge the years that I did consider and call myself codependent because without that, I wouldn't be here now. Again, I must reiterate that everything I'm sharing today is informed by my own personal experience and it does not necessarily reflect the principles of a 12 step programme. So, Rose, here's the question I want to ask you Is your resistance towards 12 steps or towards admitting your codependency and getting into some form of recovery? Because a 12 step programme is one way, but it's not the only way. I always say to my clients that codependency is insidious and it will use everything that it can against you. It's a trauma-induced coping mechanism so it doesn't want to die because it exists to keep you alive and keep you safe so it will even use the tools of recovery against you and that could be what's happening here. In this resistance you feel towards 12 steps are you being held back from starting a recovery journey of any sort? If so, it could be that this is just another trick of your dysfunction, finding the one thing, the idea of having to go to coder and always label yourself as a codependent, that your mind can latch on to to stop you from starting somehow. And perhaps when you reframe and understand it like that, you might even start to lose resistance to that one sneaky little excuse. It may feel with this fresh perspective that even if that was the only way forward in recovery, that it's a relatively small price to pay compared to the chaos, confusion, exhaustion, anxiety and disarray that codependency has us living in every single day. I hope that helps you to see a way forward on your recovery journey, Rose, whether it involves a 12-step program or not. Reach out to me on Instagram if you'd like to chat more about anything I've spoken about today. Next up, Christine wants to know, my partner of three and a half years refuses to sleep at my house. Am I unreasonable for needing this? Hey Christine, thanks for your question. I love all the questions you send me for different reasons. This one I love because it might seem super specific, but the answer is in the root of a much larger concept in codependent recovery, and that is understanding, communicating and validating your own wants and needs. Now I don't have any further context on the reasons that your partner doesn't want to sleep at your house. There may well be legitimate physical or mental health reasons that this is uncomfortable for them. There may be logistical reasons that make it feel difficult for them or they may just be stubborn and bullheaded about it, unwilling to compromise on this very routine feature of most relationships. Commonly sleepovers usually start anywhere from a few weeks to a few months in. So right at the top I want to let you know, Christine, that as someone who has not only had many relationships but has worked with hundreds of people regarding their relationships and consumes a vast amount of content and research to do with relationships, that no, this is absolutely not an unreasonable desire or expectation, the previously mentioned potential extenuating circumstances aside. Either way, I wonder if this is an isolated issue or if it occurs in other areas of your relationship. Again, if it's the case that this is very much a choice on the part of your partner rather than a boundary they have decided on because, for example, they are neurodivergent and not having the disruption of sleeping in a different bed helps them to manage that, I would fully expect that it's not the only place that they are being obstructive in the relationship. Usually these types of things don't occur in a silo. So there's something for you to consider. Is this a singular frustration or is it indicative of a partner who wants to run the show very much on their terms without much compromise for your wants and needs? Is this refusal to sleep at yours just another expression of a larger pattern of it's their way or the highway? And when you're done journaling that one out, I'd like to know, is this enough for you? Do the parts of your relationship that you enjoy outweigh the parts that you don't enjoy or that frustrate you? Is this ultimately a fulfilling relationship for you? If not, how long are you willing to wait to find out if they'll compromise on this and potentially the other things that they're on moving on? Look, regardless of whether this is a normal or reasonable request or not, which again, it is totally reasonable, regardless of what your partner's reasons are, this is important enough to you to write into a podcast to get this question answered. So I want to encourage you to validate your own needs and allow yourself to know what you feel and feel what you know. You want your relationship to progress and you want some mutual effort and that includes sleepovers at your place. And on that note, it also rings an alarm bell for me that you're questioning this. I think you know, Christine, that it's perfectly reasonable and usual to be sleeping over at each other's houses three and a half years in. In fact, many people would either have moved in together by this time or at least be discussing it. Again, I'm pretty sure that you know that. So the fact that this person has you questioning it does raise a red flag for me. I say it often and I don't mind saying it again. Actions have consequences if your partner has told you that they're unwilling to budge on this thing and it's important to you then you have the information you need to make the next move you either get to choose that the relationship is worth the compromise and make peace with it or you get to choose that you want someone who is willing to move with you spend more time with you make more effort and compromise and come for a goddamn sleepover because relationships are work and quite honestly what's the point if you don't even get to have morning cuddles in your own bed Next up, we have this from Taylor, who said, I love the idea of love and heavily depend on others, but also have commitment issues. How? Okay, super juicy question. Thanks for this one, Taylor. Also, apologies for saying juicy. I dragged that one out from my early LA-based self-development career a decade ago. Again, you're very welcome. The answer is kind of hidden in the question, if you know what you're looking for, which luckily I do. So you said you heavily depend on other people which gives me the feeling that perhaps what you've always thought of as love has actually been unhealthy dysfunctional love aka enmeshment and or addiction this often comes from our upbringing where we were taught that love is conditional on us meeting the specific and dysfunctional needs of our caregivers and often that love is chaotic and inconsistent actual love doesn't feel heavy it has a very light touch it doesn't leave you thirsting for more, desperately needing the other person. It doesn't give you withdrawal symptoms when they leave. It doesn't have you questioning your sense of worth if they're not around or not feeding back to you, not validating you. It's not chaotic or an emotional roller coaster. Love feels steady, secure, content, and consistent, aka boring if you're codependent, but more on that in a minute. If so-called love is always this intense, draining roller coaster ride of highs and lows that inevitably leaves you feeling pretty hollow after it's done, because it's never sustainable, so it always ends, it would make total sense that you would on some level fear it and want to keep it at arm's length. It's also common for codependent people because we only experience this dysfunctional kind of love that's intense and burns out relatively quickly, though we are excellent at staying long past the last embers have burned out, to want to keep several options open and not fully commit to one person. We often have backburner people, people from our past or people that we could be more than friends with, that we keep flirting with, because in the instability of what we think is love, we like the security of something else potentially waiting for us. This can also show up like keeping a relationship secret from new people that we meet so that we can keep that option open as well. However, when we get into recovery, build up our sense of self-worth and start to source validation from ourselves rather than always needing it from others, when we get comfortable with being alone, single, indie, whatever you want to call it that makes you feel empowered and good about it. When we get to a place where we may well want a relationship, want to be in love, to love and be loved, but not need it, from that place we can experience real, healthy love. When we experience real, healthy, secure, mutually respectful and fulfilling love, we no longer feel the need to keep our options open. We're happy to close other avenues and commit to someone because what we get from them not only finally feels like enough, even though it's much less intense than what we've experienced before, but crucially it also feels sustainable and it no longer feels boring to us. It feels like the solid foundation on which we can build not only our life with another person but our own life, our own hopes, dreams and aspirations. When we get to this place of recovery we actually experience a little switcheroo whereby we now find the drama of addiction and enmeshment not exciting and enchanting, but exhausting. We find ourselves gravitating towards healthier, more stable people and put off by folks who are waving red flags and trying to draw us into their dysfunctional dynamics. So Taylor, my lovely, it makes perfect sense to me how you can simultaneously really want to love and be loved, but also be kind of scared of it. I'm guessing that what you've known to be love, if it's anything like what I've just described, is actually super unhealthy, draining, and therefore kind of terrifying to keep putting yourself through. Heartbreak is never easy, but love should not feel like an ordeal before you even begin. And the inevitable next question that I always get asked is, how do I get there? How do I get into that place of being able to accept and enjoy healthy love? You've got to get into recovery, baby. We talked on this episode about 12-step programmes, and if you didn't know, codependency recovery is what I specialise in as a coach. There are lots of ways for you to get started on your journey to a healthier and more loving relationship, firstly with yourself, and then with a special someone else. It's not easy, but I promise you it's worth it. Time to stop avoiding the inevitable and hop on the recovery train with us, babe. Now this from Emma, who asked... How to successfully heal from a codependent relationship when also co-parenting with them. Finding it hard to break old habits when co-parenting differences arise. Hey love, great question. You're definitely not alone in this one. First up, I just want to give you a little reframe that might seem a bit pedantic, especially as your question was submitted in a question box on Instagram, so forgive me, but it's important to point out as the foundation for the rest of my answer. So you weren't in a codependent relationship. You're codependent and you were in a relationship. Now, this might seem like it makes everything harder, but it actually makes things kind of easier because you no longer have to work on healing this relationship as such, which would require some cooperation from the other person. Rather, the focus is on healing you and the codependent parts of you that allowed and accepted whatever it was that you experienced in that relationship. I'm going to guess that at the very least included boundaries being crossed and feelings being invalidated, which tends to continue over into the co-parenting relationship. Co-parenting with someone who is either narcissistic, manipulative, or your relationship with them was in some way dysfunctional is going to require really good boundaries. There's lots of meme advice out there about boundaries and people getting into recovery always want to do boundaries better. And that's awesome. However, boundaries are kind of an expert level skill. They are certainly not the first thing we learn to do in codependency recovery work. Because to successfully do boundaries, you need a solid foundation of self-worth plus the skill of clear, direct communication. Without those two things in place to start with, the likelihood is that any boundaries you do try to set will be inconsistent, wishy-washy, and easily broken down or run over. When you don't have a good foundation of self-worth, it's hard to identify in the first place what is and isn't acceptable to you. It's also hard to validate that for yourself. So you might figure out what it is that you want to communicate, but then start questioning or second guessing yourself, wondering if you're being reasonable or if you're asking for too much or being a nag, I hate that word, or being overprotective. Then there's the issue of actually communicating the boundary. Can you do it cleanly, clearly and directly without fluffing up the language, getting emotional, over-explaining or justifying? In all these ways, when dealing with someone tricky or manipulative, we open up cracks in our defences. If we make what should be statements into questions, we allow spaces for negotiation when we wanted agreement. If we over-explain, we open ourselves up to having our reasons picked apart by someone who perhaps doesn't have our best interests at heart. And finally, back to self-worth, because if that foundation isn't there, even if you do manage to clearly identify your boundary and communicate it, do you have the strength within you to reiterate and maintain the boundary when it is inevitably pushed? Do you have the strength and self-determination to hold your ground when your ex tells you they don't like how you're communicating these days, when they tell you you're being mean, harsh, rude, or a bitch? And co-parenting with a difficult ex is all about boundaries. As I've described, boundaries aren't easy if we weren't taught how to do them early on, and they're even harder to do with someone that we have an established pattern with. In any dysfunctional relationship, we are assigned a role. When we choose to step out of that narrative and no longer play that role, the other party is usually not happy. They want to stay in that dynamic. They don't want to be questioned or held to account, and it is totally possible to reset that dynamic, but it's going to take a concerted effort on your part to build your sense of self-worth and start learning and practicing the skill of clear communication, both of which I teach in my codependency recovery course, which is included in my recovery membership Wildly Worthy. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to find out more about that. I also give some tips on how to start building up your self-worth in episode three of the pod, so go back and check that out for some quick and actionable ways to get started. And finally, on a practical note around communication, I'm not a parent myself, but I do work with lots of parents, and I've heard that there are some really helpful co-parenting apps that can help you keep things like schedules, payments, and custody arrangements clear and tidy. I've linked to a blog post that reviews some of these apps in the show notes as well. And we're finishing today with this one from Kirsty. Can two codependents be friends? Not partners, just mates. Both know they're people pleasers in recovery and joke about it, but is this the same as two codependents in a relationship? All right, Kirsty, my wee here? Thanks for this one. The quick and dirty answer is, yeah, of course you can. And now for the nuanced answer, because we know I speak in paragraphs and extended metaphors. In episode 11, I talked about codependent-codependent relationship dynamics. This was in reference to romantic relationships, but something very similar can happen in friendships, family relationships, or professional relationships. So go back and check that out if you want to hear the gory details of how two codependents together can end up like a pair of psychotic clown emojis spinning around in a revolving door. Honestly, babes, I paint pictures with my words. I should get nominated for something. So two codependent babes together in any relationship structure will inevitably get messy. But two recovering, aware, on their own healing journey codependents, totally different story. Loads of my mates are recovering codependents. In fact, many of my closest friends, which will make sense to anyone who's been in recovery of any sort. When we go through the kind of emotional hardship that it takes to become aware, usually of decades worth of repeated patterns and actually start fixing it, it makes sense that we would have an immense amount of empathy and a stronger bond with anyone who has been through or is going through the same. I always say to my clients that in any relationship, we can endure a lot more in terms of supporting someone if we can see that they're doing something about their problems for themselves. It gets exhausting, frustrating and resentment starts to grow when they are solely leaning on other people, i.e. you, to get them through. The important thing for the success of any relationship where one or more of you is codependent is that the codependent babe or babes are aware of their dysfunction, working on it and willing to speak up about their own needs and also make any adjustments that might be required. If it becomes apparent that boundaries have been crossed either crossing your own boundaries or the other person's, all behaviour needs to be amended. Okay babes, it's time to remind you that my codependency recovery community, Wildly Worthy, is open now. For just £44 a month, you can get access to a weekly 90-minute coaching call with me, as well as my full online codependency recovery course and a community of people who are all on this recovery journey with you, So that means a totally supportive, judgment-free zone. Wildly Worthy is open to all women and female socialized non-binary people. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anti-People-Pleasing Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to, or follow the pod. It helps more people find us and join the movement to have healthier, more fulfilling relationships. I curse my heen. <laughs> That's fucking terrible. Oh god. Right <clears throat> curse my heen. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <Pluck>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's nothing more embarrassing than an English person trying to do a Scottish accent. Oh. It's all for you, Kirsty all for you. (laughs) I should get nominated for a Razzie with that accent work. So I have to let you know that I uh, googled Scottish term of endearment and the first thing that came up was (laughs) bobag. And it just didn't feel appropriate to call Kirsty a (laughs) bomb.